Do turn with me in your Bible to page 675. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles or wherever in, Ma- in your Bible Malachi is found. Uh, one, I, on page 9 there is an announcement. Um, this is kind of uh, maybe everyone is mostly aware of this, but I'm uh, going back to school and starting in, a, in another graduate program, so you can be praying for me and my family. I'm very excited about this opportunity. I'm very thankful for uh, the encouragement of the session and, and uh, the staff and the congregation to undertake this. Uh, it's work that's interesting and I hope will we'll bear much fruit in terms of my life and in terms of pastoral ministry here at Grace. So I wanted to, again, uh, uh, you know, point you in the direction of that announcement as well. We are continuing. This is our second week in the book of Malachi. Um, the last of our, well, the so-called minor prophets, he comes right before the book of Matthew and the New Testament begins uh, in terms of his location in, uh, in our Bibles. Last week, we began to learn more about Malachi and about his setting. He was a prophet to God's people after they had returned from exile in Babylon they had returned, they had rebuilt the temple, they had, um, and expectations became, began to be very high for God's people, that this would be a golden age, a glorious age, that the Messiah would return, that God's people would move towards a place of prominence and significance in the world. But after a number of decades, those hopes faded, and the people became disillusioned and disappointed in both in their lot and in their God who, was, uh, who had put them back in their land. And so this was a time of societal and spiritual decline in these years, and Malachi was sent as a prophet to draw the people back to the Lord. I mentioned also last time that this prophecy is structured in terms of a dispute between God and his people. The pattern is that God will make a statement, sometimes, as in our case this morning, it's a question, and then the people will respond with a question. And then uh, it's indicated by this phrase, but you say. And then uh, God responds with the challenge, the prophetic indictment, the uh, seeking to get to their heart and their motivation and their attitudes. And so this this kind of structure provides our, our understanding of the different topics that occur in the book of Malachi. Last week we saw that God begins his dispute with his people not with a to-do list and not with a list of all the things that they've done wrong, but with his love. And with this idea that his love is the foundational, the bedrock posture of him towards his people. That he makes promises to them that he will keep. And that he's brokenhearted when his people are scornful of his love. That his love is faithful, that it's long-suffering, that it's steadfast, that it's intimate, that it's particular. That God has loved them. And that this is the foundation, indeed, of his covenant with them, and the foundation by which he calls them back to himself. We're looking now, this week, at the second of these disputes. It's in Malachi 1, starting in verse 6. This is the longest of these, um, so it's kind of a long passage this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor that's due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, 
how have we defiled you by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible? When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands? Says the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen... And if you do not set your heart to honor me, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the awful from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you with this, this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me, and he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble." You violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I've caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Let's pray together. Indeed, God, as we come to your word, we need your help to understand it and apply it to our lives. Guide and direct our, our words this day and the meditations of our heart. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was living in Hungary, the first year I was there, I was on a team of six people, and all of us were fresh out of college. We were seeking to start a campus ministry and reach out to Hungarian uh, college students. At our initial briefing in September, when they had all of the teams there going to a lot of different places around Eastern Europe, they talked about the psychological effects of culture stress on people living in different cultures. And how you go through this sort of these natural ups and downs as a part of arriving in a place in terms of your mood, in terms of your attitude. And, and, and we had arrived in September. This was 1997. By sometime in January, we were all moving towards that real first real low point on the culture stress cycle that they described. A few months in, the new has worn off. It's been replaced by frustration. 
Why don't these people speak my language? Why don't these people do these things, these things our way? Why, are, why is it so hard to understand them? It was, you're missing home. You're missing all that's familiar. The uh, days are gray on, for days on end. The team personalities and differences had become more apparent and more annoying. It's actually, they describe this as sort of a mild depression that people go in as part of the cycle of adjusting to a new place. So in this setting, one morning, we were gathering in our living room for a team meeting and we were uh, for worship and Bible study. And while nobody really said it, we just were, weren't really into it. We were kind of just rolling out of bed, kind of unkept, kind of not really awake. But one of my uh, teammates, Brian, began to play on his guitar, faithfully lead us in some of these praise songs, and we all sat around and we sang for a bit. And, and then, right in the middle of the song, he stopped playing. And, and th- my friend Brian is a passionate guy. And he just burst out, you know, I would rather break this guitar in half than for us just to sit around here and, and not care anything at all about what we're doing or singing. Right? So this got everyone's attention really quickly. And my first thought was, please don't break your guitar. <laughs> it's a really nice guitar. We need you to be able to play it here. Please don't break your guitar. But, but he nailed us. We weren't really worshiping God. We were sitting there mumbling through praise choruses and calling it worship. We were all somewhere else in our minds, though present physically. We weren't connecting with the words. We were just there, sort of oblivious to what we were doing. Christians can go through the motions and call it worship. And while it looked very different from singing praise choruses in the living room to a guitar, the people of Malachi's day had also become less than enthusiastic about their worship practices. So in this second dispute, this second indictment, the prophet says, your God is calling you to account because of your worship. Much of the worship of Israel was clearly defined in many detailed in, in detail in many sections of the Old Testament. God had given them beautiful instructions about worship, about how to approach him, about how to honor him, how to praise him. They had a temple that was built to his specifications and then had just recently been rebuilt. They had a guild of musicians who were skilled to play all kinds of instruments. They had a special collection of songs written by their poets and their leaders, inspired by God himself. They had special garments for the priests. They had incense. They had candles. They had altars. They had food. They had all of these things woven into their culture and their traditions and their calendar. All of it pointing to the Messiah but all of it of profound theological meaning and importance. And yet, like my teammates on that morning, the people of God in Malachi's day, by and large, really weren't into it, according to the prophet. Let's look at God's statements here in verses 6 and 7. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar, but you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. 
The specific charges here is that God's people, particularly the priests he's addressing here, are guilty of these things. Not honoring, it's the same word for glorifying, so not honoring or glorifying him, and not showing respect for, it's the same word for the fear of the Lord. So these, these two ideas of honoring and glorifying him, showing respect or fear or healthy fear of him, are things that God's people are guilty of not doing. Instead, they're showing contempt for his name and his altar, his table. Let's unpack it a little. God is bringing the statement. In these cases, these are questions, right? Where's my honor? Where's the respect that's due me? And the people are responding with questions that seem to be protesting their innocence. Well, how have we been despising you or polluting you? What do you mean? In the culture of the day, of course, a son was required to honor his father, and a servant would necessarily have to honor his master. In the Greco-Roman world, at least in that time and in following centuries, by the, even by the time of the New Testament, a father held almost absolute authority over his children, even when they were adults. So God is using this analogy to make clear again what kind of relationship they have. They have one like father and son. And in many places in the Old Testament, God says that Israel is is his son. In Exodus 4, for example, God says to Moses, you're going to tell this to Pharaoh. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. And if Pharaoh, if you don't, then I will kill your firstborn son. And that's exactly what happened. This is a strong paradigm. This is a picture for God's people to understand what their relationship with him looked like. And if a son wouldn't behave this way to his earthly father, why would my children behave this way to their heavenly father? That's what God is saying. As we continue on, we see the specific sort of content of this disrespectful worship. Verse 8 When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. Skipping down to verse 12. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it's defiled and of its food, it's contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty. Codified into the law, God had demanded the best sacrifices, the first produce of the land, the best of the animals to be offered to him. Part of the reason that he gives is because the very land itself was a gift to them. And therefore, all that it produced was directly the result of God's mercy and grace to them. But we read here that the people are substituting other animals, blemished, blind, lame, stolen ones, for their sacrifices. Why give my best breeding stock if it's only going to get killed anyway? I mean, these poor guys will be good enough. They aren't really walking so well, but maybe no one will notice. 
Or, you know, maybe I can sneak a sheep from my neighbor's herd to give to fulfill my obligation before God because, I mean, he has a lot more than me and maybe he won't notice either. We're struck also by the fact that God's people would think that they can get away with this in such obvious sins related to worship. Malachi says, try offering that to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? If they would be filled with shame to present this kind of offering sick and broken animals to their, to their human authorities, why would it be okay to offer it to God? And the only real explanation, real explanation, if we think about that, the only real explanation is that they think practically that they're atheists, that God isn't really there, that God doesn't really see, that God doesn't really care if he's there. Right? I mean, what other reason would you think that it would be okay to, to give something to the almighty, all-knowing God that you would be embarrassed to give to another human authority? According to what we see here, then, the, you know, these verses are telling us that this practice must have reached some kind of crisis level. That God is calling their fires on, their, on his altars useless. The real indictment is found as God describes the attitudes of these priests and people in, 12, in verses 12 and 13. God's chosen people who were giving the blessing of the guideline, guidelines for true worship are turning up their noses at it. While in the rest of the world, nobody else had the guidelines for true worship, right? All their other nations are grasping at straws. They're stumbling around in the dark. They're trying to appease their capricious and non-existent deities of their own devising, right? Of their own devising, right? No one else had worship of the true God built into their culture and their society. And God's people had it. And one commentator described the situation like this. They've made common and of no consequence that which is holy and profound. It's a burden. It's a weariness. It's a hardship. It's too much work. It requires too much of me in terms of the energy and the cost involved. God wants too much. It's not worth it. The people, I mean, it's, it's a very graphic description here. Snorting at it in contempt and disgust. They're snorting at the worship of the true and living God in this kind of way. And God says, you're cheating. And there's a curse that comes if you do this kind of thing. In the midst of the indictment, God is expressing something else, right? This idea that he wishes that the doors of the temple would be closed in verse 10. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will, I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be, off, will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. If someone would close the doors of the altar, at least the, the, the temple, then at least people would see that they're not pleasing him and that it's better to be silent than to be a blasphemer, that it's better to stay in bed and not go at all than worship in a hypocritical Kind of way. Perhaps closing the temple doors would draw the attention to the fact that something bigger is at stake. In verse 11 and verse 14, God is describing his greatness. 
that he is the great king over all of the nations and that his name and his fame are to be known and celebrated throughout the earth. How many times in this passage did it say, Lord Almighty? It began to be kind of awkward as I kept reading it and repeating it over and over. God is saying, I'm the Lord Almighty. I'm a great king. Something bigger is at stake in your worship than what you think it is. What does it mean for God's name and his fame if his people are so lackadaisical about serving him in worship? Well, certainly on one hand, God's holiness and his glory in himself cannot be diminished because of hypocritical worship, right? God can't be any more glorious in himself than he already is. And further, he doesn't need, and he doesn't call on his people to defend his honor to other people, you know, to other nations, Uh, in that kind of aggressive way, he can defend himself. Now, there's a contrast here in some forms of of extremist Islam, for instance, instance, right? That there are blasphemy laws to punish those who speak wrongly of uh, or speak blasphemy against their gods or, or or their prophet. The honor of the prophet and their conception of God are tied to the practice of the people. Thus, right, these servants have to crush those who blaspheme. They have to fight against other people to defend their idea of God's honor. Well, God, our God isn't like that. You know, these statements tell us that his name, and there's sort of an eschatological forward-looking view here, that his name will be shown to be great among all the nations. That there will be a time where everyone will see where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, everyone will see that God is the only great king. And God will make this happen in his own sovereign way, and in some very real ways, until then, he himself is somewhat hidden. He's somewhat obscured in terms of his actions in the world. Yet, God's people must not shroud his honor, and his glory. God's people must proclaim his greatness. And part of the way that they do that is through heartfelt, meaningful, faithful, obedient worship. And in the context of this passage, in a setting of a world of tribal gods and goddesses where everyone had their own, the watching world would have cause for unbelief if the people of God were not eager and grateful to please him. As we continue in the dispute, God again narrows his gaze a bit to focus particularly on the priests in his indictment about their worship. We saw this in in chapter 1, verse 6. I think there's there's both going on here. There's a particular indictment for the priests, but also a seeing of how this became the practice of the people, partly because of the priests, as we'll see. Uh, This starts then in chapter 2. And now this admonition is for you, O priests... If you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, then I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the awful from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And then you will know that I have sent you this admonition, so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant 
was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. And this called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many away from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way by your teaching. You have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. You recall the tribe of Levi was set apart in the Old Testament to be the tribe of the priests. The priests were this group of people and, you know, this, this special class that passed down generationally. And in this day, the priests were something of an upper class. They were better educated. They were, you know, a little more sort of elite than the farmers and the shepherds and the like. They were priests. They were generally more powerful, more influential in society. And God promises to curse them and worse to rebuke and humiliate them in front of the people because they haven't set their hearts on him. And this is a particularly, verse 3 is a particularly repulsive and graphic picture. I don't even want to go into all of the details about it. It's just, it's disgusting to hear what God says, pictures that he would do to the priests. And of course, we know this to be true, that few things do more harm to the reputation of the church than before a watching world than corrupt church leaders. A Gallup poll from last year asked people to rate the trustworthiness, honesty, and ethical practices of 22 different professions. For the first time since they began asking these questions, the Gallup poll did in 1977, less than half of the people surveyed, that's 47%, ranked clergy as having high or very high moral standards. So less than half of the people surveyed said that clergy have high or very high moral standards. That's a 20-point drop since 1985. In this poll, in terms of honesty and ethics, clergy ranked behind nurses, pharmacists, grade school teachers, medical doctors, military officers, and police officers. We just edged out daycare providers and judges. Thankfully, this is good news, we're 40 points higher than lobbyists, members of Congress, and car salespeople. So all of those three professions ranked in the single digits in terms of having perceived high or very high moral standards. I don't mean to offend any car salespeople or lobbyists out there. This is what America thinks. But certainly, the the parade of high-profile Pastor and priest scandals over the years have devastated public confidence in the profession of the clergy and, by extension, in the respective religious institutions involved. Every stripe of Christian, every other religion has fallen in these same sort of ways. God's indictment is so specific because he, know that peop- he knows that people follow leaders And if a priest really thinks this isn't a big deal to worship God, then why should I bother? I mean, he's paid to care. And if he doesn't care, then there really must not be much to care about. And while God is not a respecter of persons, his standard for the priests were higher than for others in this regard. And thus, this curse is pronounced more strongly against them, that God will do justice 
towards those who lead his people. And sometimes we see that in spectacular ways in the Old Testament, in the priesthood, in the New Testament, and in the present-day church. There's a footnote there of the example of the story of Levi and his sons from 1 Samuel chapter 2. In this passage, though, not all is bad news. God also gives his people a positive example of the power of the priesthood to bring life and peace to the people of God. The covenant made with Levi that's referred to here is a reference to the account in Numbers 25. God's people had become ensnared with Moabite Moabite women and began to join them in the worship of other gods. It's another horrible scene. I feel like there are lots of horrible and graphic scenes in this sermon. Moses, uh, you know, had to call the people to repentance. Then God sent a plague, and a, a Levite named Phineas stepped into action because of his zeal for God's honor and because he cared about the reputation of God. And so as a result of that, God made promises to the tribe of Levi and that they were called to this work of spiritual leadership. The point that Malachi is making here is a contrast that priests and, by extension, church leaders have two options listed here. One is the result of walking with God in peace and uprightness. The result of that is that many are turned away from their sin and turned to God. That's verse 6. The other is described in verse 8. By turning away from God's way and by their own teaching, they cause many to stumble. And so reading this carefully, we see that priests, through both their character, that is their reverence for God, their standing in awe of his name, their walking with him, by their character and by their words, their instruction, their teaching, their knowledge, this idea of being a messenger of the Lord Almighty, all of these are key words here in this passage, they have the opportunity to either be a redemptive and life-giving presence for God's people or a stumbling block to them and driving them away from the true God. This is a lot of Old Testament. What about us today? Certainly, I think we find a universal principle here of the importance of church leadership. And we as a church and as a denomination take seriously the need for examination and training for the ordination of pastors and elders and deacons. We need oversight and encouragement and accountability so that we can stay close to God and not be derailed. And the congregation has a grave responsibility to select qualified candidates to serve in these kinds of leadership roles in the church. And of course, there are differences between the Old Testament priest and the modern elder or deacon, but the principle is that that leadership is critical to the role of the church and the health of it, and that leaders have power in their content of their character and their conduct and their words to turn hearts either from sin and toward God or to present a stumbling block and make people fall. We're in the process right now for another round of church officer nomination, selection, and training in the coming months. Join us in prayer that God would lead us in the process, that he would build up new and qualified leaders, that he would pray that he would keep all of the leaders in the church walking towards him. Pray that we might lead well for the sake of God's people, that it would be a blessing for the congregation to follow, that Satan wouldn't distract or discourage us. It's critically important as this passage is showing us. That's sort of connected to the second half, the first half. What about, the wor- what about worship? What does it look like for us to bring a blemished lamb to a worship service? What does it look like for us to sniff contemptuously at worship of the true and living God? 
Certainly our worship looks different, but the hearts of people are the same. How are we tempted to make ordinary and meaningless the worship of God? And it's not about worship musical style preferences, about the service, about what the praise team sounds like, about the room's appearance or the acoustics, or any of these other things that people argue with about worship. It's first a heart condition issue that Malachi has put the people's words in their actions to words. And that God has rebuked them for that. And says that it's not okay to go through the motions in worship. And that the heart of the worshiper must trust that God sees and that God cares. And this gets very practical, of course, for us as we think about, you know, worship happens for believers all throughout the day and in many different ways. But particularly, the context here is the assembly of God's people for corporate worship. What does it look like for us on Sunday mornings? Do we come to corporate worship expecting to give? Do we come expecting it to be easy or hard? Do we come expecting to receive? Do we have expectations that God will meet us here and that something really important is happening? And that doesn't mean that we're to expect every worship service to be some kind of glorious mountaintop experience. We pray that they would through the Spirit. But like many things in the Christian life, the path of steady obedience yields fruit in the life of the worshiper. And we're to come as we are. And we're, to become, and we're to come asking to be changed and asking to grow. We see clearly the principle here taught that worship should be thoughtful, that it should be excellent, that it should be giving our best, not our second best, or not half-heartedness, or not what a burden this is. And for all of us, youth and kids, this is for you too. I know there are things that you like and that you don't like about the worship service, but all that we do has a purpose, and it's good for you to be here. And it's good for the congregation that our youth and that our our children are here with us. We worship together because that's what God's people do, is they make a big deal about Jesus and about who he is and about what he's done. And because he told us to, and because it's good for us, Because God loves us. And our hearts and our minds need to be formed. We need to be shaped by this. This needs to be a a, a crucible that changes us. And that's what public worship is for. That's why God gives it to us. And that's why God tells us what to do. So consider these things. Repent with me of half-hearted worship. Ask for God's mercy. Seek to arrange your life in such a way that this is really a cornerstone of your week, not just a regularly scheduled event or even just an afterthought. And kids and youth, you can do this too. Come prepared to learn. Come prepared to enjoy your time with God and with his people. And of course, we don't come as perfect worshipers, fully prepared and holy before God with the stamp of righteousness on our sleeves. We come because we're in need of God's grace and we need to worship him. And he has that grace for us, abundantly and overflowing. And this is one of the ways that he gives it to us. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, this morning we are thankful that we can come, that we can be here, that no one is threatening our lives, that we're gathered here, and that we can offer up to you 
our hearts. We pray that you would change us and that you would mold us more into the image of your Son, even through our worship experience. Guide and lead us, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.